All right. Welcome, everybody. The Minds of Markets podcast is an exploration and deep dive into the minds of some of the best traders and investors in the market. And our goal is to help you, the listener, learn from some of the best out there and to improve your knowledge and your skill set as a trader or investor. The Minds of Markets podcast should be used for information and entertainment purposes only. And the opinions expressed in this podcast are our opinions only. None of the information contained in the podcast can, constitutes a recommendation that any particular security, portfolio of securities, transaction, or investment strategy is suitable for any specific person. Trading is risky, and past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All right, now that we got that legal stuff out of the way, I am so excited. I mean, th this is the guy we had to have on today. Everybody, this is Oliver Rennick. And for those of you that don't know Oliver Rennick and who doesn't know Oliver Rennick, he is the lead anchor of the Schwab Network, previously was a reporter over at Bloomberg. And honestly, his job is as straightforward as it can be. And that is to provide the most accurate and useful information on what is happening in the markets right now. If you follow him on social media, if you follow him over at Schwab, you will know it is no BS, no fluff. So I want to dive right into this. Oliver, welcome. And I, I, I can't mm. thank you enough for joining us today. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate that introduction. Uh, amen. I love it. And uh, you nailed it. That's exactly what we're trying to do is uh, describe things as fast, as accurately as possible. If I do my job right, um, I'm helping our viewers get an edge by understanding things better than they would if they get their information from elsewhere. So you really nailed it. And, and one of the things I love most, because we obviously have a lot of interaction, I appear on, on the network and we do a lot of interviews together, is you know, you you listen, you absolutely listen to what your guest is talking about, but you're not afraid to challenge, you know, if your belief is something else. You're not afraid no. to bring up other data points. It's not just a matter of, you know, teeing up the, the conversation for your guests. You engage with them in very meaningful, um, non-distracting uh, non conversation, mm -hmm. if you will. I love that. I appreciate that. It is really a core of what I've tried to do basically since I started, uh, even just reporting at Bloomberg, you know, it kind of, um, which was a, I, you know, about a decade ago now, but there was a, a sort of a um, an energy sometimes in the reporting world of finance where people hold, uh, you know, big investors up on a pedestal and are more just there to um, kind of hear what they say, get their predictions. And a lot of kind of old media, I feel like before we started doing what we're doing and what independent financial media have done as well, kind of pushed the market towards a more constructive debate and dialogue. I mean, there's always been debate, but the idea that, you know, as a reporter, your job is to just get somebody to predict what they think is going to happen. Like it really doesn't do any good. What we should be spending our time doing is trying to follow the logic. You know, why are things going to happen the way you think they will? Where does that logic have openings? Where is it sealed shut and really solid? And that's kind of what we're always trying to do is sort of probe the openings uh, to find the path of least logical resistance, I call it. I want to go to the place to explain what's happening and what could happen, leaving as few gaps in the logic as possible. And of course, with markets, you're always going to have gaps. That's the whole opportunity of trading. But there are definitely moments 
where the narrative is much more kind of airtight versus moments where it's totally up for grabs. You know, like this morning, we're recording this after inflation. It's a pretty airtight narrative, right? It's not really hard to figure out why what's happening is happening, but not every day is that clear. No, absolutely. And, and you know, you see both sides of, of the trade and market when you're talking to so many guests. So you you always have to be armed and ready with that logic because you're going to hear both sides. You're going to hear from someone today. I guarantee it, even with the market exploding because of the inflation data, you're going to hear someone that is completely bullish. You're also going to hear someone, I guarantee it, that is saying, you know, this is a blow off, you know, market rally to the to the upside. So you've yep. got to be ready with that data, with the logic to right. to somewhat have the conversation or debate both sides of that. Absolutely. It's a, um, I try and adhere to kind of a, a few principles and uh, the big one over the last, I guess, seven years or so since I came to the TD Ameritrade Network, now the Schwab Network, um, was making the transition from a very kind of macro uh, understanding of the world. My Bloomberg training was generally very, you know, macro focused, um, thinking about kind of top down from the economy through to the stock market, then to sectors. And the idea that there is a sort of fundamental truth um, underpinning everything in markets, a fundamental truth to the economic growth, a fundamental truth to earnings. But then you realize when you get more exposed to the trading world, that uh, truth can be oftentimes, uh, yeah, bent, yeah. skewed, exactly. and uh, narratives can go on for a long time before that truth is discovered. And to me, that difference between truth and reality is basically price action. And so um, I've really come to embrace the technical aspect and the trading aspect that comes with appreciating price action to be the sort of number one guide of how I think, which is, look, I might have a view of what a stock or an index or what an economy should do, but the price tells us what it is doing at the moment. And that's what matters most, right? To where, look, I might think that this whole notion of pricing in a cut in May now is like super aggressive. And if the Fed's actually serious about their inflation target, the idea that we, we'd be cutting in May when our economic expectations have been beating all of the expect our realities have been beating the expectations. That's odd. But yeah. I look at the bond market and today you've now made a lower low in the 10 year yield for the first time since we hit 5%. And you've got now three successive lower lows in the dollar. So that tells me just from the price action that the market is building conviction around the idea of the Fed being totally done and making a step towards easing. As much as I might think that like the easing, if I'm Jay Powell, would I, Oliver Rennick, be talking about easing or thinking about it in the spring? Yeah. No way. But the market's telling me that we need to start moving those probabilities upward. And now you've got basically a month of price action in the dollar, particularly to um, really make that point. So that's kind of, I think, a good example today of how to appreciate that you know technical analysis. And and we saw the same thing kind of on the upside with the rates over the last you know year or so. You know, regardless of what technicals may have told you or or fundamentals in the marketplace, 
bond market was leading the way. They they were mm -hmm. telling you what was going to happen. And, you know, maybe this is the start now or not the start. It's been going out a little bit of, of that happening to the downside now. Again, mm -hmm. with that 10-year just plummeting, I think we're at 445 now. You know, what was it? Literally a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, we were, we yeah. were touching 5% on that. It's amazing the way... Um, it's amazing the way we hit five and then just stopped. Bam. To me, because yep. that's what I've been saying. The, the question basically the last 10 days, okay? Because a lot of this depends on where you put your goalposts. So if you bear with me for a second, you put your goalposts, because this is like something I learned from talking a lot with the crypto people too, is their goalpost always goes back to day zero, right? Like, because crypto, you can see the goalpost day zero, it's always up. But a lot of people will take their asset class of choice, stocks, crypto, bonds, whatever, and they'll set their goalposts to, you know, what fits their thesis. So there's basically like a few different goalposts. If you go to the set the goalposts. Excuse post, me for interrupting. Are you yeah, saying it's ahead. always are you saying it's always easy to back into your narrative? <laughs> of course. Right. Of course. Sorry. That's why you got to set the terms, right? So yeah. my terms are basically for the stock market. You have the bottom more than a year ago in this rally. And then you've got the top top, right? That is now oh, two years ago, basically. So, okay, we're still off the all time record, uh, but we're up a lot over the past year. And then there was another goalpost in July from that 52 week record in which things shifted, right? We had this three month period off the July highs where yields started going back up again, dollars started going back up again, stocks started coming down. So within that three-month regime now, there's another goalpost basically two and a half weeks ago. And that was when we hit 5%. And since 5% in the 10-year, everything's reverted back, right? Bonds started rallying, yields dropped. So the question that I've been wondering is that 10-ish day, that two and a half-ish week period we've been in, was that just a technical event that basically happened? We hit the big 5%, Bill Ackman takes his shorts off. It's a sort of a technical moment without a lot of fundamental information behind it was that just sort of a mean reversion within the three month trade off the highs today's action tells us it's more than just technical mean reversion today's action tells us there's something real here inflation is decelerating at a pace that is fast enough to change our path for the Fed. And thus it gives bulls a big piece of meat to chew on. So let me ask you one thing here, because I have my opinion on this with, with, you know, Powell and the Fed maybe, you know, chalking up something in the wind column right now. Yeah. We're not getting to the 2% target anytime soon, right? We, right. we know that that last mile, if you will, same with, with, trucking and shipping companies, that last mile is always the hardest, right, to capture. So do you think that somewhere along the way, they may raise that 2% target to two and a quarter, two and a half, again, yeah. maybe to fit in the narrative of meeting their inflation expectations? Or do you just expect them to just wait this out? And if it takes six months, another three years, whatever it is, what do you think? I think this is the big question now because there really to me is like no bigger question than whether or not Powell and crew are serious about that target. So yeah. far, they're more talk than action because if they really, if that was their modus operandi to get down to that 2% target, 
then arguably they'd they'd still be hiking, right? But they're not because they've got these other factors, right? And they you know want to make sure the economy is not going to blow up after everything. But I do think that really is the question because if you think they're serious about two percent, then pricing and cuts is absurd. Yeah. Uh, and that's basically kind of like you know the arguable bear case at this point. However. You know, I try to do everything on an if then analysis. That's what I try to do is, you know, instead of making predictions, if then understand the relationships and the causality in the market. That way, when things happen, you know how to respond to them. Right. So to me right now, the if then that matters is if Powell actually does not take that two percent target that seriously then bulls basically have the clearance, right? Because I don't think he'll ever actually change the target to your point to answer that part. I don't think they would do that because they would just get so fried in the court of public opinion, right? If they moved up their inflation target. But it does seem like right now they are implicitly effectively doing that by not hiking when we're so far above their target. So if they maintain that stance, then uh, yeah, the bullish narrative uh, can continue, basically, or at least the rate-specific narrative can continue that they won't have to hike. Yeah, I could absolutely see them saying, you know, if, if this trajectory continues, you know, if we got down to two and a half, two seventy-five, somewhere in that range, I could absolutely see the the new headlines being we're comfortable at these levels. Sure, not that yeah. we're changing the target, but we're comfortable at these levels. And to your point you know, in the court of public opinion, that probably alleviates, you know, the stone throwing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think that there are basically kind of setting the stage uh, for something like that, because um, I thought, honestly, if you would have asked me, and I wrote about this three, four, five months ago, basically after the regional banks, um, my big narrative was of this trampoline landing. Instead of a soft landing, and instead of a hard landing, once we got through the regional bank situation, because actually we had a real smart trader come on and a few people who put the regional bank uh, risk on our radar in December, basically, it was something that we were thinking about. And so that was not like a massive surprise to the macroeconomic thesis that I had in mind. And the fact that we survived it, to me, the fact that the Fed kind of papered over it, we let a couple banks go bankrupt. And that the math didn't quite add up for a systemic event. Once we got through that, my basic view of the macro was trampoline landing. We're going to bounce back harder than people thought because we had a few stimulative fiscal policies implemented. And there was an arguable stimulative aspect of the way that they papered over and supported deposits at the regional banks too. But the risk of the trampoline landing, the bounce back in growth was that inflation would come with it. And guess what? It really hasn't. So like the trampoline part I got right, but the inflation part, we know there's no inflation nausea to this bounce. And so that to me has been the biggest development. And and, and to that, earlier this morning, just earlier this morning, I saw one of your your quotes out there. I'm going to read it here. Um, The trampoline landing without inflation nausea is the absolute ideal outcome for Mm -hmm. bulls. Still odd to think about rate cuts in March, but what's the bear case at this point? So yeah. here's here's your your what if here's the causation yeah. there I mean bingo you know spot if, on if you know it's it's hard to figure out at this point where there would be some big bounce back in inflation if it hasn't happened when we had yeah. that surprising growth uptick right like we had this 
whole quarter, the whole summer was about the economy shocking to the upside in strength, holding on much better, getting a 4.9% GDP, getting a massive NFP out of nowhere, like stuff that may be an aberration in the overall softening trend off the, you know, record strength uh, from a few years ago. But that surprising bounce back without inflation bounce back. I mean, I can see why people are really running with it here. Um, I think there's a separate argument about like big picture, you know, valuations from COVID record that are still going to be very, very hard to get through. But I mean, this is about as bullish as one could have asked for at this juncture, right? Because it's not just soft landing. It's like bouncy, you know, yeah. no landing without the inflation uh, problem. Uh, I mean, maybe a problem still, but without it uh, reflating. And it'll be so interesting because we're at that time of year that everybody, you know, knows historically this is a, a pretty bullish time of year, especially yeah. the, the later we get into, you know, after Thanksgiving and into December. So it'll be interesting to see if the market rally that we've seen kind of just, you know, meanders a little bit until we get a little bit later into December, until we get to that next Fed meeting, which is what, four weeks out right now, because after the big CPI print and PPI later this week, what we really yeah. have left is a jobs number beginning in December and then the Fed. Yeah, and that is too. What's that? Not a macro point, but NVIDIA earnings too. NVIDIA are, are earnings, on my yeah, calendar. Abs absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see if if this is kind of the precursor to the, you know, famed Santa Claus rally or <laughs> yeah. end, end of year rally, but um, certainly, certainly some interesting dynamics going on. And I want to shift for a moment here because you have had along your career and I, I've been, you know, it's been awesome to watch a lot of this. Um, you. You've had some real unbelievable interviews and some unbelievable stories from people that you have spoken with. And one, if you don't mind just taking a couple sure. of minutes, what happened? What was the, 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 you know, what were you feeling when you were talking to Carl Icahn? You know, oh, the, yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. That was like, one of my first like, okay. Uh, right. Put, kind of kind of put you on the map a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, that was early on in my career at Bloomberg. Not super early. I'd been kind of going on TV here and there. I had a show on the weekends, but I was mostly uh, during the daytime core trading hours was basically like a fill-in anchor. Whoever is out, Oliver's there, basically. And um, this was around the uh, uh, Trump election, the first election, 2016, going into that, you know, temperatures were pretty hot. Um, uh, uh, Bloomberg's own commentary at the time was kind of largely leaning one way. And then Carl Icahn was a Trump guy who was a fan. And we were in the middle of a segment that was just kind of a run of the mill segment. And, uh, a producer says, gets in our ear and says, um, I think I, I was, I'm pretty sure I was with Scarlett, Scarlett Fu, uh, who was great. I could just kind of lean on her. And it was like, Hey, Carl Icahn's calling in right now. He wants to talk about Trump's, you know, CapEx plans or whatever it was. I forget specifically. And it was like, we have to take the call, obviously. Yeah. When Carl Icahn wants to call into your network to like- We stop know, everything bam. else. <laughs> yeah, like you take it. And I'm like, well, shit, I don't, you know, I know about him, but like, you know, what am I supposed <laughs> to specifically ask here? Um, and that to me was very, very cool because it was one, it was like, keep this guy on the- phone for basically as long as you can while it's interesting we're gonna blow through breaks it was kind of like in those like uh 
like uh, cop movies and stuff where they're like, we got to trace the phone call, keep him on the line. You know, like uh, it was like, keep him on the line, get as much content as you can. Yeah. I leaned on my more experienced anchor more, but it was very cool because it was kind of one of those moments where I was like, all right, um, you do get a certain access that you would have otherwise not had when people want to be on TV and want to uh, get their message out to an audience on TV. Uh, and it also was pretty informative to me because I had no prep for that. And, um, you know, I've got the Bloomberg terminal in front of me, so I kind of go and, okay, what are the hot button icon comments lately and stuff, you know, and you can multitask, but really it taught me something that I still really lean on, which is trust yourself to respond to what your guest is saying. The best thing you can do as an interviewer is listen, and you have to trust fall on yourself. It's easier to trust fall on yourself when the content is something that you are studied in and that you are practiced in and are actively engaged in, of course. But really, the big thing is listening, responding to what your um, interviewer, your, your guest is saying. And that might sound self-evident, but actually, I find that a lot of uh, reporters uh, overly rely on notes that they've prepared, um, specific questions. You know, it's good to have a few in your pocket you can pull out if the conversation gets dry. But to this day, oftentimes a lot of the ways I'll do an interview, um, it's kind of how I had to respond that day, which was just listening, properly following their logic, responding to it, and having a conversation that you think most people would want to have. Um, so like when a CEO comes on uh, my show now, um, a lot of times, especially if they've never been on or if they just did an IPO or something and they're new to the market, our conversation will look very much like if any person were having that conversation. What do you do? What is your product? What are you thinking about? How do you make money? Uh, what are your plans? What are you going to spend your money with? Um, and that is um, really the kind of core of how I try to drive most conversations. Now, of course, when you're getting into like repeat monthly conversations with traders or portfolio managers, right? You don't want to go through the basics over and over again. So they get increasingly nuanced and kind of complex which is the fun of sticking with the program over time. But generally that is the best way to do things as an interviewer, listen to what your person is asking you and respond to it um, in just a logical uh, conversational way. That's Sounds awesome. obvious, that, but. <laughs> that, that, that to me, you know, looking from your career to me, that, that, as I said before, kind of put you on the map, launched your career a little bit. Um, yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah. You know, in, 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 in a way, in, in a way, you know, you get a, an icon like icon on, no pun intended there, and yeah. it really validates you. It validates what you're doing, right? And and so I think that was unbelievably cool. And then I know, you know, fast forward a couple of years there, and boy, you were right in the center of the entire crypto <laughs> heyday. Yeah. Know? And we had, yeah. you know, so many conversations back and forth, back and forth. And, um, you know, I think you, you, as you said, you, you learn to just let your guest yeah. kind of go with it a little bit and listen and, and play into it, but at the same time, be respectfully challenging, which, sure. which I love. Yeah, that was, that definitely um, got challenging and a little bit murky in the yep. crypto stuff uh, because just simply kind of listening and following the logic, at least, you know, in my opinion, and um, I feel, you know, entrusted, empowered by my opinion. That's, you know, how I got to where I am. People generally 
Um, you know, um, I, I feel, uh, have appreciated my market analysis over the years. It's how I got to doing what I'm doing, but I also don't want to overstep. So the crypto thing was kind of one of those moments where, Hey, if I'm going to be honest, which is what I want to do, I can't follow any of your guys' logic, you know, like there's so exactly. much circular stuff in crypto and still is in many ways that, um, it was impossible not to constantly have friction in a lot of those conversations because they ultimately oftentimes came back around to the notion of, well, this thing's going to be worth something because it's going to be worth something, which philosophically like, yeah, there's a fun debate to be had about that because there's, you know, arguably other principles that are kind of circular in that notion that are actually at the core of finance, right? The government can print because it can print, right? Um, it works. That's what it does. Yep. People buy gold because people have bought gold. And I actually really have always loved the crypto conversation, um, even though I've never been a believer in like the utility of the asset class. Um, it is, I think, been one of the most important subjects to discuss. And frankly, um, in a way, we probably talked more about the irony is that despite like the lead anchor of the network being a big crypto cynic, we probably spent more time talking about the macro connections of Bitcoin and the utility of the debate around crypto in general on our network than like anywhere else. Yeah. And um, it was just, it was a different conversation. It was never a like, oh, what coin should I buy? It was more a, how does this trade relative to gold? Is there any truth to that description? How does it trade relative to stocks? You know, what role does it have as a macro indicator versus its own, you know, thing off to the side. And so I actually find that um, a lot of my core macro beliefs and understanding and frameworks were very well informed by that conversation. They continue to be, but yeah, they're, you know, um, it's still to this day when it comes down to like the utility of them, there's always friction in those interviews because I feel right. that not too much has changed. So, so here's to my point though. So this has been not just, you know, inner one or two you know, one-off interviews, this is years now that, that, you know, oh, yeah. you probably had a, a much different mindset than many of your guests on crypto yet, yet the dialogue is always respectful. Yeah. People are allowed to have a difference of opinions of course. and these guests always come back. That's my point, right? Yeah. It's, it, it's not <laughs> this vengeful, I'm right, you're wrong sort of yeah. conversation, which you, you can't be in that position, but you don't see, you don't see a lot of that. You don't see a lot of situations where, where two, you know, personalities, let's call it, sure. will have differing opinions, have a discussion and one of them not walk away and quite frankly, just be pissed off. <laughs> oh yeah. One of my favorites, uh, probably one of my favorite uh, interviews ever actually was the guy named uh, uh, Ari Paul, who is uh, a very, very smart macro former TradFi guy who's a big crypto um, name. And um, we had a really um, fascinating conversation. Uh, you know, this was when we did a big crypto special, I guess, 2018 or so. And at the time, it was a conversation about the kind of implicit bridge loan that was being extended to Bitcoin miners through the blockchain. And it was a, a really fascinating conversation. I was pressing him a lot on it and he was responding very well. And it's funny because to the outside, especially those who were very like biased in their opinion in the crypto crowd were like, oh, this guy is, you know, Renek was so combative. And like the irony is that Ari Paul to this day 
when we talk about it and he's been on so many times since it's like his favorite crypto interview that he's ever done. <laughs> and um, it was funny too, because then, um, you know, during that period I would have, uh, I would go like uh, hard on a Bitcoin guy. And then my Twitter mentions would blow up with like ripple people. And they'd be like, yeah, get after him. And then like the ripple guy would come on and I'm like, well, hold on. You've got some issues here too. And the ripple people were like, wait, what? <laughs> like, And it's just, uh, yeah, it's when there are certain camps, there are certain camps and markets. There are like a few like kind of cultish camps within markets. Obviously part of the crypto, I think a big part of the crypto stuff is kind of like that. There's gold people that are like that. There's like super hyper stock perma bulls and bears. You know, there are these pockets of like extremes and like zealotry. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when there's friction in those pockets, the, uh, the people that are in it, think it is, uh, you know, a, a personal thing. And then, so, well, that's, that, that was my point. I mean, you know, people get so emotional about this, right? Oh, yeah, Especially, some stuff, you know, yeah. the, the, the meme craze was, was front and center with Another that. one too. Yeah. AMC GameStop people. It's like, well, hold on, man. It's not personal. You know, like, exactly. I'm trying to follow the logic here. Like, you know, uh, you're, you're the math says you're, you're, you know, your debt's going to put you out of business. You know, or the correlation says yep. you're not gold. You're a st more like a stock, you know, in the case of crypto, like things are like, they're just realities. There are, there is so much in markets that is impossible to know for certain. So we really have to rely on the few things that we can rely on, which is basically correlations, relationships. Now these things break, of course, but until they do, they're really the only truth that we can have. Higher highs and higher lows, that's an uptrend. Lower lows and lower highs, that's a downtrend, right? Simple, we have to really um, embrace the things that are easy to figure out in markets and objective to describe because so much is unknown and changing. And even the things that are objective can change, right? Like um, the, to use crypto as an example still, I've always said that the big moment will be if crypto disconnects from stocks in a crypto positive way while the dollar's coming down. In other words, yeah. if the correlation between stocks and crypto breaks in favor of crypto and you have the dollar coming down, then that is like a, a pretty clear sign that something's going on where this asset is being chosen over stocks yeah in a, you know, in a moment of uncertainty. And that was really fun uh, earlier this fall because we got a little pocket of that. We, we, um, yeah, we talked about me, that. Yeah, we got a little pocket of that, you know? Um, so anyway, that's kind of like, um, it's an easy, it's a fun subject to talk about and um, is a really good kind of Petri dish for studying how we narrate markets and describe markets because there's so much like hyperbole and then there is, the reality and um, trying to adhere to the reality of the things we can rely on until they break is really the baseline of what I try to do. Can we talk about what I think is the most important pressing question of the day? And okay. it's not C it's not CPI. Important question of the day. That's not CPI. Yeah. When are we hitting the slopes? Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, depends how public your calendar is, but I need to get back at it. You know, there's not a lot of options out here apart from the ice hill and uh, up past Milwaukee or whatever up here. No, we are. We're, we're going out west again. And and for those of you that don't know this, this guy right here, Oliver Rennick, he uh, 
he knows how to find the trees. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm just glad I got my legs still, but uh, I need a little dose of uh, the, the Scott Bauer coaching again. There we go. I can't wait. I can't wait. Listen, I, I really, I can't thank you enough. I mean, having a conversation, you know, outside of the podcast, which we do, you know, quite, quite often, it's always so enlightening and so refreshing because you do bring the logic to whatever it is we're discussing. And again, whether your belief is same as mine, different from mine, it's always a very, very um, um, well-rounded, exceptional conversation, eye-opening. Um, and I, I really just can't thank you enough. And um, you know, so, so cool to watch your career. And, and I'm glad I've been just a teeny part of that kind of along the way with all of our interviews. I've known you since day one, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much, uh, in studio and, um, just there. So it's been great. And Oliver Rennick, Schwab Network, um, love it. Can't thank you enough. We really, really appreciate your time, man. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, Scott. Fun combo. All right. Have a good one. We'll see you soon. All right, bud. Thanks.